Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Robbie Jones about how the white American church has had slavery and white supremacy in its DNA from the beginning. As he explores in his new book entitled White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Well, there's a lot there, Robbie. We're very glad to have you today. Robert P. Jones is a CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and a leading scholar, commentator, and author on religion and politics. Jones writes a column for The Atlantic on politics and culture. He is frequently featured in major national media such as CNN, NPR, The New York Times, Washington Post, and others. He holds a PhD in religion from Emory University and an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Robbie's latest book, White Too Long, comes out on July 28th and is available now for pre-order. Available now, folks. This is one you want to read. Well, there's a lot here, Robbie, and I'm so thrilled to have you on today. So thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Jim. So, Robbie, how is your spirit these days? I would say it is both heavy and hopeful. Um, you know, heavy, we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, three things, any of which on their own, I think would be, you know, a major crisis in the country. That, that one is uh, the pandemic, you know, which in recent weeks has uh, begun to sort of spike back up again instead of going down. Um, that one on the topic we're talking about today, you know, we're seeing such disproportional effects um, of between white Americans and African Americans and Latino Americans with white Americans being much less likely to both be infected uh, from the virus and to die uh, from the virus. Those are historical, you know, legacies of structural inequalities uh, that are very visible in that data today. You know, the second thing is um, a movement um, uh, that is really calling the question um, again in our, in our society about racial injustice um, and what we're going to do about it um, in the country. Uh, and then third, we've got, you know, what is clearly going to be one of the, you know, most divisive uh, presidential election cycles um, in our lifetime. So all of that, I think, is pretty heavy. Um, I, I do think um, the question getting called around racial justice, though, may provide some opportunities. And and I, and I think we're seeing some changes already on the ground that I wouldn't have envisioned a year ago. And, and that's given me some hope. Well, heavy and hopeful is another way of saying uh, a crisis has both danger and opportunity at the same time. And uh, you said that, well, COVID-19, as you said, has, has laid bare uh, so, much, so many of the inequities, things. It's verified <laughs> the inequities that many have talked about uh, and made them very clear and specific and real. And then this moment of uh, racial reckoning, perhaps because we were all watching, closed down in a pandemic, all watching these eight minutes and 46 seconds with a white police knee on a black neck of George Floyd, which 
has prompted this new conversation about 401 years um, about uh, systemic racial injustice. In this moment of, of reckoning, hopefully a moment that becomes a movement around race, this book seems to be right on time. I mean, right on time. So what compelled you to write this book, which now is coming out just at this propitious, maybe uh, providential moment? Well, you know, this book's pretty personal. Um, you know, my day job at, at PRI, I'm a you know, social scientist. I'm looking at uh, data, patterns in the data that reveal, you know, these kinds of inequities and, and um, differences between white Christians and African-American Christians. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I also grew up Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi, and both sides of my family tree go back into the red clay of Georgia, middle Georgia, uh, Macon, uh, Georgia, Bibb County, Twiggs County, back six generations. Um, so, you know, it, my family's history is, um, you know, very, very steeped in the white Christian churches of the, of the evangelical South. And I think it was, you know, really uh, a growing consciousness, I think, over the last four years, I think particularly in the Trump era where um, things that were once dog whistles, you know, around um, issues of race have really been, you know, turned into megaphones and microphones. And, and I think this kind of growing consciousness of that, but, but not just that, but this consciousness of, of really an abiding presence of white supremacy that lives within the faith we white Christians have inherited um, and, still, and still live within. And so I think it was this sense of seeing patterns in the public opinion data um, really, you know, looking back at the history and realizing um, that, you know, we have this kind of, you know, you mentioned 400 years, this you know, centuries-long commitment to a social order that protected and nourished white lives at the expense of black lives. And what I think has not been taken quite as seriously is that that the role that, that Christianity played legitimizing that worldview and how that has disfigured white American Christianity, um, and then what that means for us today. So I think that's really, you know, what the book is really my journey of trying to sort that mm. out. Let's stay with that for a moment, because I often feel that we don't get personal enough with all of this. It becomes fights over ideas and sound bites and ideology. But, but you know, this was, as you just said, powerfully a personal journey and still is for you and I who come from a similar background. So what was it like for you? Uh, you're known as a scholar and an analyst and all of that, which you are, but for you personally to write White Too Long, tracing this white supremacist history of the church, you write in the first few pages of the book, you say, the 1815 Family Bible on the top shelf of the bookcase in our home our home library, which gives witness to ancestors from middle Georgia who were Baptist preachers, slave owners, and Confederate soldiers. So what was it like for you to grapple with this history on both a personal and a family level? Yeah, well, it was it was a tough book to write, um, honestly. Um, you know, it was one that I, I felt like I needed to write um, for my own clarity, you know, vision and uh, I mean, and, and it's, I think, no exaggeration, really. To I mean, it felt like for the sake of my soul, I needed to write this book and to, and to really think this through and to understand it. Um, you know, I was that kid growing up. I was at church five days a week. Um, you know, I mean, I literally like 
you know, you could think about Friday and Saturday be, as being kind of Sabbath from going to church um, in my life growing up. Um, that that you know, I was very involved in youth group. I was very involved as a kid, and you know, there are a lot of things that world gave me. You know, but it, it has taken me well into my adult life um, to realize, you know, the role that it played in really blinding me, uh, honestly, to. Uh, systemic racism, systemic injustice, when it was all around me um, growing up. I mean, I, I one quick, you know, thing I, I remember, you know, I write about this in the book, uh, that like my, my generation, so I'm 52, I was born in 1968. Um, and so I was in elementary school in the 70s. And I remember the first African-American kids showing up at, at our public school 20 years after Brown v. Board of Education. Like that's how long it took Mississippi uh, to stop dra dragging its feet and actually integrate the public schools, you know. So, so I, I had some of that, you know, in in there, and and my parents, I think, did the did their best to really shield me from the worst. I think of Jim Crow era, uh, you know, South that they grew up in, and and so they they were able to put some distance there. But I think that really only created a little, you know, kind of a a possibility of seeing things differently. Um, but it, it, that, that world I grew up in was just so powerful at, um, I mean, I, you know, as I've reread Martin Luther King's, you know, letter from Birmingham jail, where he talks about who are these people, you know, sitting there behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows. And I, I think that's an apt description of, you know, the church I grew up in that, and the churches that I grew up in that were very protective and nurturing to those inside of it and very indifferent. Uh, to the claims uh, of African-Americans all around them. You know, um, many people like you and I who have come from that evangelical tradition have been frustrated that there's this such a disproportionate emphasis on personal rather than public faith. You write, it's nothing short of astonishing that a religious tradition with this relentless emphasis on salvation and one so hyper-attuned to personal sin can simultaneously maintain such blindness to social sin swirling about such as slavery and race-based segregation and bigotry. And you go on to mention that based on polling in 2012, white evangelicals and white Protestants both largely adhere to this individualistic faith when it comes to racism. With such a deeply ingrained focus on personal, even private salvation, how do we shift the framework to focus on uh, the social sins you mentioned or the systemic racism being revealed and named in Black Lives Matter protests around the country? Yeah, I think it's really hard. And I think the thing that I really, I had to come to terms with is that that theology was no accident. I think that's the, that was the key for me in that, that white Christian theology, and it, it turns out it's not just white evangelicals. White evangelicals are stronger on many of these measures of individualism, uh, theological individualism, but it is actually seeped out into white mainline uh, circles and white uh, Catholic circles. Um, is is what the public opinion uh, data you know reveals today. But I, I think the 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 challenge is that it was created that way by design. And you know what I mean by that is if you think about you know the crucible that early churches in America uh, were created in. I mean that 
we were created in a slave owning society, right? And so in many churches, um, such as the progenitor of the one that my parents uh, grew up in in Macon, um, you know, it, it was not that uncommon, right, for slaveholders to bring enslaved people to church with them. Um, and they would sit in the back or they would sit in the balcony and the white slave owners would sit in the front. And that's the way church got formed. And if you think about, you know, what that means for theology, for the hymns we sing, for the prayers, for the liturgy, it means that all of that was developed in a social context where owning other human beings based on the color of their skin was a preconceived notion that was taken for granted. So everything else had to fit that presupposition. And so as the theology developed, right, it, it, it determines what can be preached, what can be prayed, what can be sung. Um, and one of the ways that it gets developed is this hyper-individualistic way so that a white slave owner could have this sort of interior relationship with Jesus and feel just fine about that and warm, uh, warmly moved, right, um, in kind of evangelical language uh, about that. While really, it, that, and that shields out, that kind of hyper-individualistic frame just shields out the stuff around it. Um, and so I think it's very, very deep. Um, in the theology. And it, it, I think it's going to take, you know, more than, uh, you know, a couple of potlucks with the, uh, uh, the, the, the African-American church down the street. It's going to take a, a serious um, reconsideration of evangelical theology top to bottom. I, I kind of liken it in the book um, to something like a bone marrow transplant, you know, like it's so deep um, that you basically have to kill the immune system um, and bring someone close to death uh, in order to finally bring them to health. And I, I think that's a situation we're in after hundreds of years of this being sort of just built into the the very DNA of white Christian um, uh, white Christian identity in the country. So the book talks about how this white American Christianity and white supremacy are so intertwined. They're not just something over here that you can, move away from. They're so deeply intertwined. In fact, some scholars would say that it was the Christians, uh, the British and American and European Christians, who who made our American slavery, slavery as racialized as it became because there were slaves before. Greeks were slaves to Romans and tutored, you know, rich Roman kids, families. But, but we couldn't do, we couldn't do to indigenous people and to kidnapped Africans. We couldn't do to them what we were doing if they were people made in the image of God from Genesis chapter one. We couldn't do that. So we had to say, well, they weren't really. We had to say they were different. They were lesser and we were better. And so we almost had to defend ourselves by, 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 by making our slavery racialized. These are not people made like us, the image of God. They're different. Take them to church, sit in the back. And so that is so foundational, and you lay out how that's so intertwined. This is more than just uh, changing our minds about a political issue. It's so deeply ingrained in that privatized theology that defended this system of greed, the system of, 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 of brutality for the sake of our greed. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's right. I, I think that's why it's so challenging. And, you know, I'll, I'll shift it, you know, because I, I can imagine like, um, you know, a number of, you know, listeners who may, I can imagine a number of listeners who may hear um, this conversation and be kind of taken aback 
by it, right? And and uh, but you know, one of the things that that I think grounds it for me is you know that this is not just a historical um, story that we're telling, but it is something that you can see in contemporary public opinion data. Um, and you know, one of the things. So you know, just you know, a couple of examples ripped right from the headlines uh, today. You know, we talk about. Uh, we at PRI have asked you know questions for a number of years about the killing of unarmed men uh, by police and whether these are isolated incidents or whether they are part of a pattern of how police treat African Americans. And you know one of the things I was struck by is that on question after question like this, that's about kind of structural injustice uh, and structural racial injustice, white Christians and not just evangelicals but also mainliners and um, uh, white Catholics look very, very different than their African-American, uh, fellow African-American Christians, and they look very different. Um, and this point, I think, is is one of the things I make in the book uh, very poignantly, is they look very different from white, unaffiliated uh, Americans. And so on this question, for example, um, white Christians are nearly twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated whites to say the killing of unarmed men by police are merely isolated incidents. They have nothing to do with each other. Um, you know, on the question of like Confederate symbols, um, you know, that has come up uh, again, you know, this year in a very um, prominent way, white Christians across the board, again, um, are at least 30 percentage points more likely than religiously unaffiliated whites to say the Confederate flag is more a symbol of Southern pride than it is a symbol of racism. So on question after question, if you ask among whites, who is closer uh, to the views of African-Americans and African-American Christians on this question. It's not white Christians. It's white, religiously unaffiliated um, Americans. Which is raising the question about what do we mean by the phrase, the body of Christ, uh, and how the, the Corinthians text talks about how when part of the body suffers, we all should suffer. But if we're not even aware of the suffering of the black body of Christ or black parents, worry about their kids uh, uh, in danger on the streets from police, how are we able to suffer with, as that text talks about. You say uh, in your intro that to many well-meaning white Christians today, and you're saying that well-meaning, they're well-meaning people. You also point out they're evangelical, Protestant. Evangelicals get a lot of the, the brunt of this because our, the numbers were so high in their support. Uh, for Donald Trump in the 2016 election, but you're saying evangelical, Protestant, mainline Protestant, and Catholic, uh, there's a cultural norm of white supremacy. So the question is, if racism is uh, our nation's original sin, which more and more people now say it is, what does repentance mean? What does that look like? Um, uh, how do we, when we have sin, we, have, we repent? from that sin. Uh, what does that look like to you now, seeing these different answers to those kinds of very revealing questions? What does repentance begin to mean for white Christians? I think this is the key um, you know, question. Um, and it, it and here I, I'm genuinely perplexed because you know I like you, I mean I drunk deeply at the well of evangelicalism growing up. And if there's anything we heard about on a weekly basis, it was repentance, um, right? And, you know, it is uh, all, and, and repentance is certainly not just saying we did something wrong, right? But it is uh, 
making compensation and and uh, making it right with if it's someone you've done something wrong to, and then it is turning, you know, a real turning, um, right? So that it is not just continue, you know, not just sort of saying, "Oh, I'm sorry," make it right, and then continue on the same path. But it is a serious turning around, right? So that you not only see the other you've wronged, but you see the wrong and the path that you're walking, and being willing to make a change. And and so I, I've been a little um, perplexed given how deep that is in evangelical and, and, and white Christian theology generally, um, and at how anemic the response has been from white Christians um, to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, this kind of knee-jerk response that it's, a, you know, all lives matter, blue lives matter, you know, and, and as a way of kind of rebutting, um, you know, the, the statement of Black Lives Matter. And, you know, what I think has happened is, um, and, and here I think there's two things going on. Like there, there is one absolutely white Christians have to think about uh, who we've wronged, um, uh, that it was done by countless acts of commission and willful omission, uh, that we really have to take that seriously and who we've wronged, uh, and then ask the questions and how do we make it right? You know, and if we ask it in plain language, you know, then conversations about restitution, about reparations, um, come very quickly and easily in that con and, but I, I've been really, um, well, you know, appalled, I guess is the right word, at, at the response of many white Christians to questions around reparations. They've just been completely dismissive um, of those conversations. Or, you know, for example, like Southern Seminary, um, which is, the, you know, the oldest kind of flagship seminary uh, um, among Southern Baptists, um, who was founded, which was founded, by the way, um, uh, with the first, the founding president of the seminary was also the chaplain of the Confederacy. Uh, was actually the guy who held the Bible and said the prayer as Jefferson Davis took the oath of office in Montgomery. Um, and, you know, so we have that history. Um, and yet, uh, even when there's been attempts to tell that history, um, as Southern has, has done, but then when there's a call to actually think about restitution, uh, so that after they kind of partially told their, their story of, you know, the complicity of some of the early faculty um, there, there was a call. Uh, to tithe some of their um, endowment uh, to help an African-American uh, theological institution in the area. And there wasn't even a serious conversation. It was just dismissed um, out of hand. And I, I think those hard conversations about, you know, yeah, if, if, if we're going to talk about sin and we're going to talk about repentance, we have to talk about restitution. I mean, the, you know, the Bible's pretty clear, you know, uh, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, uh, about, you know, God saying, look, I hate your festivals. I hate your, you know, these songs don't, and, and don't come, you know, to the, uh, piously to the altar. If you've got something wrong between you and your brother, like go and fix that first and then come and talk to me. Right. And that's a very clear biblical mandate that I think is really going to be taken seriously. Um, you know, in the, in the space, in the place that we're in today. But that's politics, <laughs> restoration, restitution, uh, reparations, uh, changing policies. I remember when I was a kid in my little white evangelical church, and I was now going into the city and meeting black churches and young black men, same age as myself. And a young an elder took me aside one night after one of those trips and said, said son, you have to understand that uh, Christianity has nothing to do with racism, that's political, that's political, and our faith is personal. 
That's political. Now, you write in an interview with CNN, you just were very clear about that. Uh, why are Christian churches so slow to respond to racial injustice? Uh, because you say it's pretty comfortable for them to say their theology is about personal salvation, personal lives. We've been saying that. But it's been so constricted to be, constrict to be only about, you say, personal piety. It gets disconnected from those claims of justice, which are right there in the Bible. Everything you say outside of salvation has been labeled politics, and it's a self-protective move. Yeah, I think anytime uh, you know something gets dismissed inside a white Christian church by somebody saying, well, that's just politics, um, we ought to look really hard at that. That is the line that has been used uh, to keep claims of justice out of white Christian churches. Um, you know, it, it, it was the line that was, I mean, we had Jerry Falwell uh, Sr., you know, uh, when, when Martin Luther King was organizing uh, and, and other African-American ministers were organizing in the civil rights movement, uh, you know, famously said, you know, that, that uh, civil rights and, and those sorts of issues have no place in, in, in the church, right? Preachers should be preaching the gospel and those are political um, issues. Um, and he did that very specifically, right, to um, delegitimize the work of King and other African-American ministers who were um, organizing for civil rights, um, even though, right, as we all know, that uh, those movements were deeply theological, right? Um, and and then, you know, clearly changes his tune later and becomes one of the founding members of the Christian right. So, you know, uh, the uh, and, and, and becomes very, very, po- not just po- political, but partisan. Um, you know, um, in later history by linking up with the Republican Party. So, you know, things are political, I think, when uh, they threaten uh, the white supremacist status quo. Um, then, they, then they're political. Um, when they don't, uh, they're part of what it means to live out the gospel in public, right? And, and so I think these sort of arbitrary distinctions we have to recognize as really defense mechanisms of defending the status quo and in, in the U.S., um, you know, that status quo has been largely uh, built on an assumption that, you know, uh, structures are, are set up uh, from housing policy to uh, the way the GI Bill was um, implemented in this country. I mean, there were up and down ways that benefited white lives and were, were meant to limit uh, the upward mobility of black lives. My dad, as a sailor, uh, got a GI Bill and FHA loan, which made us middle class as a family. When you get education and housing, you're middle class. And none of the black sailors on his ship got the same thing. It just was structural. It was political, right? So so it's almost like, you know, in our service, we, we might hear like that text you recited, uh, take away from me the noise of your solemn assemblies, but let justice roll down like waters. Right? Oh, no, that's political. That's political. <laughs> You'd have to be, every reading of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos would be called political. But you, you write about the, the white Christian shuffle, <laughs> a subtle two steps forward and one step back of lamenting the past sins in great detail, even admitting they had pernicious effects, but then ultimately denying their legacy requires reparative or restorative or costly actions in the present to fix those things. The shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. No, the white Christian shuffle was, um, you know, my attempt to just describe um, 
this agony I would experience reading, you know, and or hearing statements from white Christian pastors or reading statements where you would think that, you know, an argument would start off one way and you would think it was about to sort of take responsibility and move toward repentance and move toward, uh, you know, uh, acts of uh, restitution. And it would immediately stop short and sort of tack back to the middle. Um, and and so I, I kind of named this rhetorical strategy. I kept seeing it over and over and over again, uh, because I think what white, white Christian leaders know right now is they can't say nothing, right? They have to say something. Um, but I think the real test is going to be um, not just what they say and, 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 and lament, because I think lament is an easy thing to do. Yes, of course, we had slave owning founders. Uh, yes, of course, you know, they had they published horrific you know, things about African-Americans and theology we would uh, reject today. Uh, but, you know, when you get statements like, um, uh, well, we can't repent uh, for, for the dead. Uh, you know, we can't apologize for the past or, or, you know, or we can't change the past. We can't repent for the dead. Uh, it, it, there's this kind of little, you know, almost like a little jujitsu move that gets done uh, that, that uh, will lets people wiggle out of the harder questions. And, and I, so I think, you know, the, the, the formula that I think has even, even well-meaning, many well-meaning white Christians have operated with is something like this. It's like um, uh, lament, kind of white lament um, generates, uh, yeah, and an apology, right. Is then accepted by African-Americans and then we get to reconciliation, right? So it's lament, uh, plus acceptance of an apology by African-Americans equals reconciliation. And nowhere in there is the issue of justice and restitution and repair. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that I, I tried to emphasize and that, and that I've learned actually from watching some churches on the ground who are really trying to do this hard work and realizing that, you know, everyone wants to reach for reconciliation. And I guess that's the other cautionary thing I would say is that no white Christian should be reaching directly for reconciliation with African-Americans unless they're willing to ask a uh, talk about the questions of justice. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's another way of moving past the hard questions to relieve um, a, a kind of sense of guilt uh, without really um, wrestling with the implications for the for the present and and how deeply I think uh, and this is the question for me really is that yes there are absolutely things there is this question of restitution and repair that is critically important um, but there is also this is not just an altruism uh, you know issue for white Christians um, because I think the thing that white Christians haven't quite calculated into and this is the thing I think that's come even late to me um, is how deeply we have distorted our own faith, right? So even if we're only thinking about ourselves, um, hundreds of years of bending and disfiguring our faith to fit around the mold of white supremacy um, has really made the faith almost unrecognizable, um, I think, for what it should be. And, and that is a deep, deep challenge, and I think the work that has to be done, done today. Well, you call that in your book uh, how it's distorted or disfigured our faith. Those are strong words, uh, disfigured our faith. But if we understand that, you know, in that phrase, white Christian, if the operative word in the phrase is not Christian or evangelical or Catholic, but white, which it really often is across the board, uh, white is... Uh, you know, it's something we, we made up. Uh, the, uh, whiteness is a 
myth. It's a lie. We created that out of uh, distorting our history. And it's also an idol. And idols, what do they do? They separate us from our faith. And so as long as white Christians, we feel like this is what we have to do for other people who have been impacted by this racism we say is wrong, rather than seeing it as this is for our own salvation. This is for our own souls. As you said before, this is about how we get our faith back from the, let's just call it the idolatry of white Christianity. The idea of white Christianity is really an idolatry. And when you said, I thought it was good, you said they have to do something. But often what people want to do is they want to move into relationship with a black church or let's swap pastors or choirs or once a month we'll have a conversation I've never seen white churches more uh, needing uh, since since the Minneapolis moment, more needing to be in relationship with um, black Christians and the black body of Christ and reach out and cross those boundaries. But then, you know, you said in um, CNN that white evangelists waking up is speaking up. Uh, I remember Joel Osteen marching in Houston uh, you said that one measure of authenticity for white Christians is where they link reconciliation with justice and repair. You just said you've seen now some evidence of churches doing that hard work on the ground, uh, where it's not just performative, uh, but it's really trying to do the work to do uh, restoration and repair. What does that look like? What does that authentic work look like? Yeah, um, you know, I think there's there's not a ton of models out there. And, and I think people are feeling their way along, but I, I would say it's messy and it's long, um, you know, and the, the, so I, you know, the, again, this book is fairly personal. So I, I tracked, you know, my own family's trajectory. So I spent some time in Macon, Georgia, uh, where there are um, just quickly, there's two, two Baptist churches in Macon, Georgia. Well, there's actually two first Baptist churches uh, in Macon, Georgia. Um, and they sit, basically around the block from each other, very, very close together. You, they actually, uh, there's a kind of park area that if you follow their back parking lots, uh, they both meet up in this, um, kind of park area and they used to be the same church. Um, that's why there's both first Baptist church there. There's a predominantly white one and a predominantly African-American one. Um, and you know, the, the African-American church is largely the descendants of folks who were owned by, uh, the members of the white. Uh, Baptist Church there, and these churches have, you know, uh, they split right before the Civil War. The the African American Church got its full independence, you know, sometime around the 1870s, um, and then since then have been largely, you know, in this kind of small community, um, kind of carrying out their own independent lives without much interaction at all. Um, and about five years ago, the two two pastors finally said, "Look, what what are we doing? Like, we we really should." Uh, you know, get in conversation with each other and, um, you know, figure out how we can build some community here and how we can deal with this very painful and awkward past um, that we have. And, you know, that's mostly in, in t- it's, it's entailed a lot more work on the white church than it has on the African-American church. It's, it's certainly been work for both, but the work that the white church really had to do was to really come to terms with its own history, right? And And so, for example, they actually had a historian in the congregation that that really started digging through, um, not just you know like most churches they have a kind of rosy um, uh, history written by a member you know about the glorious history of the church, but they had a historian starting taking more critical history, 
and found things like, um, you know, there, there was a, the, the kind of accounting ledger uh, where it seems pretty clear that in, the church was in debt, the white church was in debt, and in order to pay some of its building fund debt and to pay the pastor, uh, some of the members sold uh, some of their slaves uh, in order to kind of write the books. Uh, and the church had to really come to grips with that. And what does that mean uh, for who they are today and, and who they want to be? And uh, so there's been a lot of work just inside, I think, the white, the white congregation there. But uh, they have been on this journey and they made a commitment five years ago um, to kind of be in covenant uh, with one another. Um, and, I, and I think that that journey has been has been real. And, you know, all along the way, there have been little and big ways, I think, that not only individual members, but the churches themselves and particularly the white church and, and the relationship has really um, has, has been changed, I think, in the way that it sees itself and the way that it's, it understands the work that whiteness has done uh, in their in their Christian identity. It's a very powerful uh, scene or metaphor case that you make here where the ancestors of one church, the black church there, were owned by the ancestors of the church next door. Yeah, uh, that's a very powerful picture of what we're talking about, and what does it mean to fix that? And and and, and where one group of people sold the ancestors of the other people to pay their bills. Yeah, it's uh, a very and, powerful. And here's the thing: that's not as rare as you think. Um, there are there are in Washington D.C. where you know where we are. I mean, there are two. Uh, Baptist churches that have a very similar history, and and really all across the South, especially there are many many churches that have that history. And I would say, like the other question that you know churches that aren't that old um, would ask, you know, need to ask themselves is why are we where we are? Um, so if if you know there's a white church and it's out in the uh, all white suburb, why is it there? Um, and 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 what was the history of that church? You know. Uh, uh, being there, you know, in my own church uh, that I grew up in and, and kind of working class side of Jackson, Mississippi, um, you know, moved from where it was. Uh, and a lot of the members moved out to the to the Jackson sub, kind of second ring of suburbs and, and really a second wave of white flight um, out of the city of Jackson that happened really in the um, 1990s. Um, and so, you know, it's out there in the suburbs um, where all the other white people from South Jackson moved. And so just asking those kinds of questions. Um, and, and when there was a startup church, you know, why did it start where it did? Um, you know, what was the and, and, and how did that community get built and come to be, um, you know, that was a, a cow pasture 20 years ago? And, and as soon as you start asking those questions, the issue of race and racial injustice comes into focus fairly quickly. And racial geography isn't by accident. Right. <laughs> it didn't right. just happen. Places and spaces mean an awful lot and why we're here and you're there are critical. You, you you did a publisher's weekly interview that I thought was very powerful. And you relate to that in this interview. It's almost about how those churches that you're just discussing very, very vividly were governed by their sociology. Now they're trying to get back to their theology. So you argue in this interview with publishers weekly that, again, white evangelicals and white mainline Protestants and Catholics supported Donald Trump in 2016, not out of their theology or their values, but that, to use your words, Trump's attraction for those voters is based in nostalgia. Since Trump is appealing to a 
demographic past, the one you just described, a demographic past to what seems to his supporters as a lost world of white Christian dominance. Those voters have shifted the political goalposts from values to nostalgia. And for them, the end is more important than the means. So what does this nostalgia contain and how real or imagined is this nostalgia for white Christian dominance? Is that our what's motivating us or instead of our theology and values, that nostalgia for that history that you just described powerfully with two churches side by side? Yeah. Well, I think the nostalgia piece is very powerful. Um, and, and, you know, Trump, uh, President Trump has been very good at stoking this sense of, you know, a lost golden age of America. Um, and he is the person to turn back the clock um, and reset it. So it's why, you know, we have such an anti-immigrant uh, set of policies with this administration, because it's keeping all those brown people out. Uh, and it's about preserving, you know, a kind of more white, uh, white culture. Um, and and the, the Christian piece of this, I think, is, is real. You know, you and I talked about I mean, my, my last book was called The End of White Christian America. And that was mostly a demographic book um, where I was looking at the changing demographics as a way of trying to understand the motivations um, of, you know, white Christian voters. Um, and that book came out before the election. But, I, you know, we could see the uh, winds blowing. And, you know, and it, it, so it's demographically true is the first thing to say. The country is changing. Um, uh, so, uh, that's real and that is causing a great deal of anxiety among the former majorities of the country. So who are the former majorities of the country? Um, it was first white Protestants, uh, even like president uh, Roosevelt, for example, was, um, kind of infamous for saying, this is a white Protestant country and everyone else is here by sufferance. Um, you know, and that's a fairly liberal, uh, president, you know, saying, saying that, uh, but that was a fairly common, um, you know, just assumption um, in the country, but the last the last time the U.S. was a majority white Protestant country was 1993. Um, and if we look, even if we put all white Christians together, Protestant, Catholic, non-denominational, you name it, um, you know, it's really just been in the last uh, decade that we have gone from a majority white Christian country uh, to a country that's no longer majority white and Christian. And I think that crossing that threshold. Um, you know, at a time of, uh, it's a great time of great demographic change. And it, it has been part of this reckoning that we're seeing in the country is that this tipping point that we're reaching demographically uh, of no longer being a white, a majority white Christian country. You know, we're within a few decades now of no longer even being a white country. If you put all whites together. Um, and I think that sense of change and a sense of who America is, has set off this this um, this change in political ethics that really has abandoned principle um, and is really about, okay, we, we just have an end and that end is preserving a majority white Christian America. And so the, the means of preserving that end become less important because the end is seen as to be ultimate, really. I mean, in theological language, that's that's an idol, right? Um, it's a thing that we've set up that, that we are going to protect no matter what and at all costs. Um, and, you know, so far we've seen... Um, I, we have yet to see the price be too high um, uh, to pay uh, for that so far. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, that we're seeing right now, I think particularly with the racist language coming directly from the president um, around Black Lives Matter, um, around, um, uh, you know, 
police violence, uh, you know, uh, 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 all of that, right? That around the Confederate flag, um, we've seen just very explicit uh, messages from the president um, around those issues. Um, the question is really going to be very, very clear. Um, if there was any ambiguity in 2016, um, 2020, uh, there's going to be no ambiguity about what the president is standing for on this on the issue of race. And the question is going to be put directly to white Christians this time around. And is that a deal breaker or is it not? I remember a phone call, that phrase deal breaker, a phone call after the election 2016. A number of evangelicals were on the call, and I was on the call as well. And one of the white evangelical leaders said, we didn't vote for Donald Trump because of his racial bigotry, but because of other moral issues. And a black evangelical woman said, so I guess the racial bigotry wasn't a deal breaker for you. Mm, mm -hmm. And it ended the conversation right there. Now we've seen the clarity of what you've just now said. There's no, uh, when at the Mount Rushmore speech, he lifted up the Confederacy as part of our heritage to protect and defend and continue. And it was so crystal clear. So here's the question now. And a lot of this is when I asked about your spirit, you said heaviness and hope. A lot of heaviness here, particularly that powerful image of those two churches in your hometown side by side, black and white. Like the, the article I wrote about, I read about this woman was saying she is a monument, a Confederate monument, because she's a light-skinned African-American and she's got two sides to her family and, and one side had raped the other side of her family. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and that's what she comes from, you know. Uh, and she's a monument, she said. I, my body's a monument to all that. Here's two churches. So this is heavy, heavy stuff. But now, now, is this a moment uh, in biblical language, a Kairos moment where things change because of being locked down and watching all this because of that video, because of what happened to George Floyd? Is it? You and I have talked about this, given the unprecedented national response, including in the churches, to that public murder of George Floyd, those eight minutes and 46 seconds, whether racism could emerge as a primary religious issue in this election, as a religious issue, not just the old standard abortion, gay marriage, and religious liberty, but could racism be perceived by churches as a religious or even the central religious issue going into this election? Could that happen? You know, I'm hopeful um, that, that it will. And, you know, when I think about that question, you know, is it, is it a religious issue? I mean, it, you know, uh, there's certainly no question that it, that it is uh, right. Um, you know, whether, whether people will recognize it as such, I think is, is the, is, is the question in, in front of us. Uh, you know, that I, I saw so one quick uh, story, you know, that I've been really struck. So I spent some time in Richmond um, last summer doing research for the book. And, and when I was there, you know, last year, almost exactly a year ago, um, all the Confederate monuments were up. They'd been stand, most of them, they'd been built between 19, 1890 and 1919, over a 30 year period, more than 50 years after the Civil War, most of them were erected, um, you know, really to kind of, uh, push uh, as, as the South was reclaim, kind of reclaiming and putting, overthrowing reconstruction and reclaiming white supremacy. Uh, these were monuments meant to kind of solidify and to 
um, settled the question if there were any African-Americans who were wondering who was in charge. These were monuments set up to be very public uh, displays of, of that um, reclaiming of political and social dominance. Um, to send a signal, to send a yeah, signal. Yeah, to send a signal, absolutely. And in Richmond, what's, what's striking about this for, and this gets to the religious issue, is that what happened is that first the Confederate monuments get built, and then what we see in Richmond is seven of the most prominent white Christian churches that were originally located in downtown uh, abandoned their buildings in downtown and rebuilt the buildings uh, out on Monument Avenue to be in the shadows of these um, Confederate monuments. And that that happened over the next couple of decades, fairly quickly, actually. I mean, these are like the white elite Christian group, you know, in, in Richmond. Um, and and just that that sense that that shows you like, so here, here are the Confederate monuments and here come the white Christian churches, the legitimizers, right. Of that worldview. And I, th- I think that's the thing is, is that white Christian churches were the most powerful means of legitimizing white supremacy the country has ever seen. And I think taking that responsibility seriously is one of the things that, that white Christian churches have, have really got to do, um, you know, in this, in this coming. So like, you know, not just, and, and it's not just, that's the most, I think vivid image because they literally re- rebuilt themselves, you know, in the, to be in this, to share the same soil with um, these Confederate monuments. Um, but, you know, there, the, this happened in, in, in less dramatic ways all, all across the country where, you know, white Christian churches were, were legitimizing this, this worldview. So it has been a religious issue for hundreds of years. Um, you know, th- and, and the question now is whether we're going to take, I think this religious issue, this Christian issue um, uh, that's about, you know, faithfulness and righteousness and sin and whether we're going to take that history, uh, seriously enough, um, I think to continue to let it be a religious issue, but in a different way than it has been in the past where we just sort of welcomed, uh, this kind of de facto white supremacist, uh, view into the fellowship of our churches. Um, and, and are we going to say, no, actually, um, that's no longer going to be welcome here. I was in a call last night with um, uh, pastors in uh, one of the key states, black pastors trying to prevent voter suppression, stealing the election by not counting black votes, and then white churches and multicultural churches as allies and they were talking about how this is not just a political issue or a party issue, but about the image of God, as you were saying. It's about throwing away a Mago Day. You suppress a vote because of the color of a voter's skin. That's an assault on the image of God. And they were saying how theological this is for them to be involved in. These are life and death, death issues now. So the question is, we've been talking, you, you've been talking as a... <laughs> as a scholar, but also a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor here, you're also one of the most respected pollsters in the country. So would, if racism was perceived religiously, and as you say so well, and a religious issue in this election campaign, would you start to see, or are we starting to see, any white Christian voters peeling away from their 2016 voting choices, women, young people, anyone. Yeah, no, it's a great question. We've been paint. We've been watching this, particularly with um, kind of a measure around um, Donald Trump's favorability. And you know what we're seeing is um, 
we are seeing some shifts, um, particularly over the last few months. Um, and as uh, the protests around racial justice have come forward, as the pandemic has continued to flare up and spike up, uh, we are seeing some movement among white Christian groups, but it's it's uneven. So white evangelicals are essentially hanging in there with, with Donald Trump. We have not seen anything that looks like a kind of leaving or abandoning of, of their support for uh, for Donald Trump, particularly if you compare back to like their baseline favorability in 2019, it looks pretty consistent. And that is to say more than six and 10 uh, have a favorable uh, view, uh, continue to have a favorable view of, of Donald Trump. We are seeing a modest drop among white mainliners, but a precipitous drop among white Catholics, interestingly enough. Um, so white Catholics, their, their favorability is now under 40%. Um, and, and that's, we haven't really seen that uh, since we've been tracking this through, through his presidency. Um, so those will be important, particularly in the, in the uh, upper Midwest, battleground states, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where white, white mainliners and white Catholics are as big as white evangelicals are in those states. Um, so those will be uh, really, uh, really important things to, to pay attention to. The other thing about vo- um, voter suppression you talked about is that, you know, there's real evidence um, that, uh, that this is a problem that we at PRI polled around the midterm elections and just asked uh, voters, um, you know, whether they experienced any problems at the polls. We had a whole list of uh, different kinds of problems, whether they were told they were at the wrong place when they really weren't. Um, they had to stand in, in long lines, um, you know, uh, told they told they weren't registered when they were. Uh, and, and it turns out that um, African, both African-Americans and um, Latinos um, in 2018 were three times as likely as whites to say they experienced some kind of problems voting. All right. And that was in a more normal kind of lower turnout midterm election where things are much more manageable. All right. And so if we had that kind of problem in, in 2018, which is a fairly orderly um, election, you know, and this one, that's going to be a lot more chaotic uh, with a mix of mail-in voting, absentee voting, uh, and in-person voting, um, you know, the opportunities for uh, that kind of disenfranchisement, I think, are going to be um, fairly large, and they will probably um, affect, uh, and the evidence suggests they will affect, um, you know, non-white voters much more than they're going to affect white voters. And they're actually, that's those, that's a very uh, clear expression of what's happening now, and some people don't want black voters to vote. You know, what does that mean all by itself? But it's calling for this this campaign. We're calling it Lawyers and Collars, where lawyers uh, want to protect. But collars, clergy, and the lawyers from their churches are going to those polling places. And we were on the phone with the Secretary of State last night from Michigan. And, and it's becoming a calling to, to, to collars, clergy, with lawyers to make sure we protect uh, and make this a safe, free, and fair election. And the, the feeling on the calls is more of a uh, calling than a politically a political operative campaign. This is this is clergy saying this is this is a matter of faith, an issue of faith for us. So a lot of young people are on the call. So maybe this will call forth something from us, and will overturn what that elder said to me a long time ago, and you speak to so powerfully in this book. No, Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. And our faith is personal. (laughs) Uh, You undermine that whole thing in your book powerfully. 
analytically and theologically. And so um, why too long? The legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. Thank you for joining us, Robbie. Uh, we're going to read this. Uh, you're, you're, you're stepping in at the right moment here. The book is perfectly timed. So thank you for this conversation. Oh, thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. To hear more from Robbie, follow him at, on Twitter at Robert P. Jones, at Robert P. Jones, and check out his new book. I'll say it again, White Too Long. My, my, that's well said. The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me, if you'd like, on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you.